right, Exodus chapter 40 is where we will be this morning. And uh, we have been walking with the Israelites in their space between Egypt and Canaan, between slavery and promised land, and looked at the, the metaphor of the desert um, in specific as being symbolic of those places in our lives where we feel deserted, where we feel alone or abandoned, or we feel like we don't have the resources we need. And then in the big picture, talking about how realistically all of the Christian life is desert life, where we are not yet, um, we haven't yet seen the coming of God's kingdom in its fullness. We haven't yet entered the ultimate promised land, so to speak. And so we are wandering. We are journeying. And, uh, and we, just like the Israelites, find ourselves trying to relate to God and trying to figure out what life looks like in these in-between spaces. And so this morning we're going to... Um, Look at the final chapter in the book of Exodus, but before we get to that, I want to kind of give you a little bit of backstory. Last time, uh, Ken was up here, he was in chapter 20, looking at the Ten Commandments. And so, so here's the scene. God's people out wandering in the desert, and God calls their leader, Moses, up on this mountain where God speaks to Moses, and he gives him these commandments, and uh, the Ten Commandments, he gives them several others. And then in, in chapter 25 of Exodus, God kind of shifts gears a little bit. And he starts to talk to Moses about the construction of this thing called the tabernacle. And God, for several chapters there, lays out really a set of building plans. And it's this it's this beautiful, ornate, but also portable sanctuary. And God begins to, uh, to explain to Moses that there's going to come a, a new season in their life in the desert. And in Exodus 25.8, God says, Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. And so up until this point, God has been incredibly gracious and faithful to Israel. Not only has he brought them out of slavery in Egypt, but you'll remember when they were hungry, he provides food for them. When they're thirsty, he provides water for them. When they're disorganized and scattered, God, through Jethro, provides a leadership structure for them. When they're kind of, as a society, beginning to fall apart, God graciously provides the law for them the Ten Commandments, to help them live a good life with him and with each other. So God has been deeply involved and has broken into the world of these Israelites wandering in the desert, but we get this sense that God isn't through yet, like he's not yet satisfied just to be the God who rains down bread from heaven or, or lays down the law on Sinai, but there's something within God's heart that just longs to be with his people. He wants them to know him and to experience his presence in a, in a whole new way. And so beginning in Exodus 25, God tells Moses, I want you to build a tabernacle 
this sanctuary, this place where my presence can dwell among you. And if you read through, it's incredibly interesting how God goes into great detail describing every little part of how he wants the tabernacle to be built. From the kind of wood there to use, to the kind of linens and skins to build the walls of this tent, uh, to the kind of oil they're going to burn in the lamps, the kind of bread that they're going to bake uh, to have within that sanctuary. Um, Incredible details, all the art and the furnishings and the materials that are going to be used. God gives this very detailed list. And it's so, it's so uh, detailed in the, in the sense that this work is going to require skilled laborers. And so God even specifically names a dozen or so kinds of skilled laborers that he wants to work on this tabernacle. He needs carpenters, and he needs goldsmiths, and he needs perfumers because he wants it to smell a certain way in there. And he needs bakers to make the bread, and, and, and on and on and on, people who can sew and people who can work with, with rocks. And uh, you get this sense that whatever else is going on here, God has a very specific vision. And there's some very strong intentionality behind what God wants this tabernacle to look like, to feel like, to smell like, to sound like. And then once he's done with the building plans, he goes into a description of how worship is going to be conducted within the tabernacle. And so he sets up this system of priests with Moses, Moses and Aaron kind of leading these guys that are going to lead the community in worship. And there's this whole system of offerings and sacrifices and cleansing all these very detailed, meticulous uh, rules that God lays out for here's how life in my tabernacle, in the place of my dwelling, is going to work. Okay? So all this is being spoken by God to Moses as Moses is up on the mountain. So Moses is up there by himself. God is saying, here's, here's the tabernacle. And meanwhile, what's going on? Meanwhile, the whole community of Israel is down down on the ground level, and they're getting anxious. Remember, the desert is the place that produces anxiety and brings out the worst in us. And they, they say, we don't know what happened to that guy Moses. So they turn to Aaron and say, hey, uh, will you make a god for us so we can worship him? And uh, Aaron goes, yeah, sure, I will. Bring me all your jewelry. And so in Exodus 32, you have this famous story of all Israel brings their jewelry, Aaron melts it down, and then he forms this golden calf. And so Moses comes back down the mountain after this crazy encounter with God with really good news. Like, hey, guess what? God himself is coming to dwell among us. And before he can break the news, he sees all of Israel dancing and partying around this idol that they've created. Which is just ironic if you remember what the first two commandments are, right? Like, that's not how they want to start this new season with God. And uh, Moses goes to Aaron and goes, what, what did you do? And it's classic if you read the line. Aaron goes, hey, I don't know what happened. They gave me all their jewelry. I threw it in the fire and out came this cow. So I, don't look at me, right? Totally, totally denies any involvement. And, um, and as the story goes, God looks down upon this 
These people that he's rescued and made this incredible covenant with and has faithfully and generously provided for. And they are now worshiping a golden calf that they made with their own hands. And God gets angry. He gets really angry. In fact, he tells Moses at one point, he's like, I'm going to need you to go and deal with them because I'm afraid that if I see them, I'm going to kill them. Which sounds super, super harsh, unless you're a parent, then you totally get that, right? <laughs> and so God's fuming. And so Moses goes, and he deals with the people harshly. He destroys, I mean, I mean really vivid, extreme language. He destroys the calf, melts all it down, dumps all the, the gold that they used into water, makes them all drink it, right? Just like washing out their souls. And, uh, and kind of lays into them really good. And then he comes back to God, and he asks God to be merciful. And it's fascinating if you notice the nature of that conversation when Moses appeals to God and saying, will you please continue on with the plan? Will you please come and dwell among us? Will you continue to be our God? He doesn't make a case for the goodness of the people. Like, ah, oh, they're actually really good. They just screwed up or, you know, whatever. He appeals to the goodness of God. and says, this is the kind of God you are, and I know it. You're a gracious God. You're a forgiving God. And, uh, God is pleased with this interaction with Moses. And so the game is back on. The tabernacle plan is back on. And uh, after Exodus 32, you have the, the whole story of these people, these skilled laborers and craftsmen working really hard to build this dwelling place for God. And God had said to Moses, I want all the people to bring all these offerings, all the materials that we need, the lumber and the fabric and the skins and the gold and the onyx, have them bring it all to me. And there's this funny place in Exodus 35 or Exodus 36 where the people had actually responded in giving so generously that they'd given too much. They had given too much lumber and too much skin and too much gold and Moses has to get up and say, okay, that's enough, right? So imagine Kip getting up on a Sunday and saying, you guys have actually put too much in the offering plates. We're gonna need you to stop giving, right? That's, that's the scenario. And so there's this sense of anticipation, this sense of we can't believe it. God is actually going to come and dwell among us. They're excited. They're looking forward to this huge moment in their story. And where we'll pick up this morning in Exodus 40, chapter 20, has Moses putting the finishing touches on this tabernacle. Everything's been built and crafted exactly as God wanted. And Moses has the job, the honor, of setting the furniture right in the right spot, hanging those curtains, putting those last finishing touches. And so we'll look at that starting in verse 20 of Exodus 40. <clears throat> Moses took the tablets of the covenant law and placed them in the ark attached the poles to the ark and put the atonement cover over it. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain and shielded the ark of the covenant law as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the curtain 
and set out the bread on it before the Lord, as the Lord commanded him. He placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the, before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord commanded him. Then he put up the curtain at the entrance of the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings as the Lord commanded him. He placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. They washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle, an altar, and put up a curtain at the entrance of the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels." And so, just a couple observations. If you'll notice, um, multiple times in that little chunk, as Moses is setting up the various elements within and around the tabernacle, the writer makes sure that we know that he is doing everything, how? Just as the Lord had commanded him, right? And so, there's, there's something that God is God cares about something in this process. And if you look at how this process unfolds, there's something really interesting. How does God have Moses finishing up the tabernacle? From the inside out. He has him start at the ark, this holy uh, dwelling place of God, and then he moves outward. He puts up this curtain, and then he sets up the, the table and the lampstand and the bread and all that, and then he moves outward. And eventually he finds himself out in, the, in this outer court. And so <laughs> Moses does everything as God commands him, and this is the moment Israel's been waiting for. God is going to come and dwell among us, and then in verse 35, here's how the story ends. Moses could not enter the tent. He had started in the middle, in the inside, worked his way out. God comes and fills the tabernacle with his presence, just as he's promised. And Moses can't go in. That's how Exodus ends. They build this sweet tent in the desert and God's in it, and they're not allowed to enter it. So um, that's disappointing, right? 
Because they were stoked. God was coming to live amongst them. They were going to get to be with God and see his glory and know his presence. And when God comes, they can't go in. That's how Exodus ends. Which, interesting enough, actually makes Leviticus make some sense, if you know how the story goes. Leviticus is now an answer to this question. What must happen for sinful, impure people to enter the presence of a holy God? But we're in Exodus, so we won't get to that for now. Um, Moses is standing there, and he is hungry for the glory of God. We've seen in Moses over and over again that he has realized that there is nothing in the world that can satisfy the longings of his soul other than God's very presence. He is not content with riches or with power or with wealth or with any other thing. All he wants, and we hear it in his prayers in the desert, God, show me your glory. Do not send us away from here without your presence. You are the very one that we need. And now Moses is standing there on the outside of the tent. And there's curtains. There's barriers. There's walls between him and God. Do you know how that feels? That sounds very familiar to me. To have this desire, an authentic, deep desire that I want to know God. I want to be with him. I want to experience his power and his presence in my daily life but it just feels like there's all these barriers, like there's all these curtains, there's all these walls that stand between me and him, and no no matter what I do, I can't seem to crack through to the other side. I can't seem to find myself living in that abundant, thriving life that my soul longs for. Every single day, and if maybe it'll cross one of those barriers, it seems like there's a new one, whatever it may be. Or that, that really specific moment that we all know when you're talking to somebody on the phone and you're going off telling a story or whatever it is and you haven't heard them say anything for a while. And you say, are you still there? You know that feeling? <laughs> that just hunch? That there might not be anybody on the other end of this line. We may have been disconnected a while ago and I'm just going off, Right? That's that feeling that Moses has. I'm cut off. I'm disconnected, and I don't know how to break through. It's common to humanity. Now, maybe for you, it's not so much that I want God, I want, I want Jesus, I want to know him, and I want to love him, but I would argue that just by being human, we were brought into this world with a hunger for glory. Would you agree? That we want to be wowed. We want to be impressed. We want to be amazed. And so this is why we're all going to spend, you know, from 3 to 7 today sitting in front of a football game because we want something to wow us. We, want, we don't want to miss out on that because it may be the best game ever. Marshawn may go beast mode. Who knows? Brady may inflate the balls all the way. Something crazy could happen. We want, or maybe it's the best commercial ever, or whatever it is, we don't want to miss out. Even if you don't care about football, right? Like, this is important. I want to go there. 
or maybe it's not the Super Bowl, but this explains so much, this hunger for glory. This is why some of us travel the world to visit new places and see amazing landscapes or architecture or cultures or whatever it is. Maybe this is why some of us love a good book or a great movie. This is why some of us are drawn in to, uh, to these virtual worlds of, of video games or social networks or whatever it is. We look and we want something to wow us, to impress us, to wake us up. That is our God-given hunger for glory. Something that will make us feel alive. And C.S. Lewis writes about this in The Weight of Glory, that if we invest in any of those things, not that they're bad things at all, but any of these kind of, whether it's travels or wealth or experiences or whatever, if we look to those things as the thing that's going to fill us, he calls all that stuff dumb idols that are going to break our hearts. Because none of that stuff, the big game or the amazing place or the thrill or the rush, it's not the thing, is it? What we're longing for is the thing behind the thing. The one true thing that can fill our hungry souls, fulfill that longing for glory. And so all of us then find ourselves like Moses, standing on the outside of this tent, wishing that we could pass through, wishing that we could find that thing. How did that happen? How did we get to this point where all humans have this common sense of there's barriers and walls between me and the thing that I need most? The Bible actually tells us that story. It starts in Genesis 1. I won't rehash the whole story, don't worry. But it starts with God creating the world. And he creates this garden for the first humans to dwell in, which becomes this prototype of the life that God envisions for humanity. And if you read the description in Genesis 1, this garden is a place full of beauty and full of abundance where all of, their, all of humanity's needs are met. Their physical needs, there's plenty to eat. Their emotional needs, their relational needs, their spiritual needs, all of their needs are met, not just in the place that God has pre- provided for them, but ultimately in God's very presence with them. If you read the descriptions in, in Genesis 1 and 2, there's this picture of God and humans walking together side by side in in covenant relationship. And it's personal and intimate and beautiful. And in case we're, we're missing it, the writer in Genesis tells us over and over and over again that Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. It's this picture of, so in Moses and in our world, there's barriers, there's curtains, there's separation. But when God first created the world, everybody's naked. There's no curtain. There's no barrier. There's no thing that separates us from God or us from each other or us from the pleasures and wonders of the world that he's created. And God, over and over, looks on the world he creates and says, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. This is what God has in mind. God's people in God's place, living in covenant relationship with their maker and the lover of their souls. 
And then all hell breaks loose, right? Adam and Eve reject God's rule and God's love and decide that instead they want to be their own gods. Instead of trusting and obeying what God has said is right and wrong, they choose to possess for themselves the knowledge of good and evil, saying we are going to decide what's good and what's evil, what's right, what's wrong. Instead of trusting God and living into his rule, they assume the place of God in their own lives. And what happens? Paradise is lost, right? They're cast out of the garden, and the very first thing that we're told as, these, as this fabric begins to tear is that they realize they're naked. And they hide from God and from each other. The curtains show up. The barriers show up. All of a sudden, humanity is cut off from the presence of God that we were made for. And so then, we've got the rest of this story in Genesis and Exodus. God calls Abram and says, I'm going to make you a father of a great nation. That's the beginning of Israel. They go into slavery. Now God brings them out. And when we get to the tabernacle, we get this incredible picture that God is doing something really intentional here. It's not just like he's bored and wants to build a tent. There's something going on in the big story here. What's fascinating is if you read through the way that God lays out the vision for the tabernacle to Moses, you begin to make all these connections between God's creation of the original world and the setting up of the tabernacle. All these parallels between Genesis 1 and 2 and that middle chunk of Exodus. For example, we know that God speaks the world into existence with these seven words, right? Seven times he speaks on seven days and creation comes. If you read through in Exodus 25 through 31, God speaks seven times. There's seven movements of the creation of the tabernacle. If you notice some of the details that God asks Moses or commands Moses to build into the tabernacle, they're things like palm trees as the decorations and cherubim all over the thing. You remember at the edge of the garden, God has two cherubim. And then some of the materials God wants them to use to decorate the tabernacle, we're told specifically, are gold and onyx, which you may not remember in Genesis 2.12. We're told that in the Garden of Eden, there was pure, rich gold and beautiful onyx. And even more so, the first spirit-filled person in the Bible shows up in God's construction, the tabernacle, and he's an artist. Artists, take note of that. Because this is an echo of God creating original, the original world, the original creation, by his spirit. It's not just the work of, of men, but it's God's very work. And it actually goes on and on. Go, go back and read through it sometime. It's fascinating. What's God up to? He's rebuilding Eden. He's showing up in the middle of the desert and saying, I'm back. I'm beginning a work of new creation. 
I'm not going to let my people run away no matter how much they want to, no matter how much they'd rather worship a golden cow than me. I'm not giving up on you. I am coming back and I'm entering into your world and I'm restoring things back to the way they're supposed to be. The tabernacle is God's way of beginning this act of new creation, bringing Eden back. And so the tabernacle becomes this prototype of the garden. He's opening a way, announcing his arrival into the world. One writer says it this way, at this small, lonely place in the midst of chaos of the wilderness, a new creation comes into being. In the midst of disorder, there is order. The tabernacle is the world order as God intended, writ small in Israel. So here's how you could say it. The tabernacle was the one place in all of creation where the reign of God was to be visible and unopposed. It's supposed to be a representation of God's vision for the entire cosmos. The Lord ruling over the universe, that his very presence is there and all creation is responding in appropriate obedience. The tabernacle is a microcosm of God's vision for the world. It's how things are supposed to be. It's a return to Eden that God is there with his people. And so that's the vision, that's the invitation. And then we get to the end of Exodus. Moses is stoked, builds this sweet tent, and he can't go in. And so that's when we start to see that the tabernacle was a huge first inaugurating step in God's act of new, new creation, but it isn't the ultimate fulfillment. That it isn't actually going to be the ultimate gift of God giving himself into the world. Because there's going to come a time when God does this decisively and finally. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, Verse 14, the writer says this, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. All you Bible college students know exactly where I'm going. The word became flesh. Who's the word? It's Jesus. Becoming flesh, God becomes human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. The most literal translation, the word dwelling, is what? Tabernacle. The word became flesh, and he tabernacled among us. Here's what John is saying. He's saying that the vision of the tabernacle was a beautiful one, and a compelling one, and ultimately it was a true one, but it wasn't the complete vision of what God had in mind. Because God ultimately wasn't just going to come into the world and dwell in a tent made by human hands. He was going to go a couple steps further. Ultimately, he's going to come into the world and dwell in a person named Jesus. 
And John says that now we have seen the glory of God by looking at Jesus. And he's writing this on the other side of Jesus' life after his death and resurrection. He's saying, when we look at God entering into the world and the life that he lived and the things that he taught and ultimately his suffering and death and resurrection and ascension, he says, guess what? We've seen the glory of God. Or in other words, we actually have the very thing that Moses longed for. At one point, earlier in the story, Moses said, God, can you please show me your glory? And what did God say? He said, I could, but then I'd have to kill you because nobody can see my glory and die. And now this first community of Christ followers is saying, yeah, we've seen the glory of God, and that's crazy because they're still alive to talk about it. God has made himself known to his world through his Son. And we can look at the life, death, resurrection of Jesus and say, now we have actually beheld the glory of God. Now we have seen God and we know him and we know what he's like. It's an incredible invitation. The word becomes flesh. Or you could say, Jesus is to God what a spoken word is to an inaudible thought. You know those moments, whether it's in marriage or at work, where you would just be like, I wish you would just tell me what you're thinking instead of trying to read your mind and then they just say it? How refreshing it is. And this is God saying, you don't have to read my mind anymore. The word, Jesus, this is who I am. And so this means really quickly, first, obviously, that Jesus is God in human form, But in regards to that barrier, that disconnect, those curtains that lie between us and God and those feelings, it's not just that Jesus is the God on the other side of the curtain, it's that he is actually the way through. That he himself, and man, go back and look at the tabernacle language and then look at the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus not only is the tabernacle, but he is also the priest and he is also the table, and he is also the bread, and he is also the light, and he is also the sacrifice, and it is his blood that gains us entrance and access into God's, into God's presence. So Jesus isn't just the end, although he is that, of course. He's also the means to the end. He is the way. And ultimately, if you look at all the Gospels as they talk about the moment of Jesus' crucifixion and death, They all use tabernacle language. And among Jesus' final words, as he hangs on the cross, he shouts out, it is finished. Now notice in Exodus 40, 33, Moses has done everything as God commanded, and so Moses finished the work. What happens when Jesus dies at the temple, which is the permanent version of the tabernacle that would come later? The veil is torn. The curtain is ripped, not from bottom to top with human hands, but from top to bottom by the very hand of God. And saying, I'm back. My presence is now with you. You are welcome and invited into the life with me that you were created for. It's an incredible, incredible invitation. And so in Hebrews 10, as we close, 
We're told, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, that inner sanctuary of the tabernacle, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And so the invitation is not just that we get to come and to dwell in the tabernacle of God through fellowship with Christ, although it begins there. But as the Bible goes on, the tabernacle language gets turned on to us. That we now, as the church, become the dwelling place of God in the world. And just like the tabernacle was the one place where the lordship of God was to be visible and unopposed, the church is to be the one place in all creation where the lordship of Jesus goes unchallenged. We are the new tabernacle. We are the, God's new gift to the world to show the nations what it looks like when things are aligned the way they're supposed to be. In relational harmony between humans and God and each other and, and the rest of creation. And so what that says to me is that God's meticulous instruction for how the tab tabernacle is to be built and cared for, that now comes to us. And we know that the church isn't a building. Some churches have buildings that they worship in, but we're not talking about church buildings. What's the church? It's us. And so that meticulous attention and that skilled labor that goes into making the tabernacle beautiful and assigned to the world, that now is turned on to us in the way that we care for and nurture and build relationships with each other. The way that we love one another, the way that we forgive each other, the way that we share life deeply across, across racial barriers and age barriers and all the social standing barriers that the world is divided by, the church is the microcosm of God's new creation. It's a sign to the entire world that God is coming and he, God has come and he is coming. It's the one place where the lordship of Christ needs to be totally visible and completely unopposed. And so my challenge for us is that we would take great care, that we would assume responsibility not only for the development of our own faith and connection with God, but that we would also be a people that are meticulous and skillful and careful and intentional about the relationships we have with each other. Because ultimately Israel, and for us as the church, we are to be the recipients of God's presence and blessing. But the original deal God made with his people was always, I will bless you and I will make you a blessing. That we are the recipients of the presence and glory of God, but we are also to be those that distribute it to the world. We're not just users, we're actually dealers, right? I don't know if a metaphor from the drug world is helpful, but you get the idea. How about this? We're not a cul-de-sac. We're a highway, okay? God pours his life into us and says, now I want you to spread my life to the nations. God gives himself to us and says, now I want you to give yourselves away. 
so that his glory may be known the world over. So let me close with a prayer. And it'll be obvious I've been hanging out with Ken. Soren Kierkegaard. Spirit of holiness, you live in the midst of impurity and corruption. Spirit of wisdom, you live in the midst of folly. Spirit of truth, you live in us who are deluded. Oh, continue to dwell there. You who do not seek a desirable dwelling place. Oh, continue to dwell there. That one day you may finally be pleased by the dwelling which you have prepared in our hearts.